0: Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, MagicandAlchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lisenby.
1: (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballew. What are we talking about today, Kristen? Today, we are talking about hearth magic, the role that food plays in ritual, and one of my favorite types of witchcraft, kitchen witchery. I know that you're a plant witch, Kate, but do you dabble in kitchen witchcraft as well?
0: Absolutely. I find cooking and spending time in my kitchen both magical and therapeutic. I'm so happy that we get to speak today and even happier to be talking about kitchen witchcraft. As I was working on writing my story for today, I was thinking about you and the Azores and gardening. I know that you just completed a pretty serious homesteading harvest season. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? How
1: are you feeling? Well, I'm still recovering from harvest season burnout, but I will say that every year, while it doesn't necessarily get easier because the work still has to be done, we learn more of what works for us and what doesn't. Our greatest successes have come from watching our neighbors, seeing when they sow, when they prune, when they harvest, and how they store their food over the winter. I can't remember if I told you this, but many people here garden according to the moon cycles. This past growing season, I did a lunar gardening experiment of my own, but it's really special to learn from people who've been doing it for decades longer than I have.
0: Have you learned any recipes from your neighbors, or are there any recipes that you're
1: dying to try out? Soup and apple cobblers are definitely my weakness when it starts to get cold outside. I am also a sucker for homemade bread. There's a super simple Portuguese bread recipe that I got from my husband's aunt and it's hands down the most delicious and easiest recipe I've come across. (laughs) So I'm all about that. What about you? I know that when COVID first hit and everyone went on a massive cooking kick, you and I spent many evenings discussing plant medicine and exchanging some of our favorite recipes.
0: Yeah, definitely. I've never been great with baking I I really can't seem to get the crust right um I have some sourdough starter that I've just been kind of staring at but I will say that soups are my absolute favorite I'll touch on that a bit later in the episode for sure a few weeks back you mentioned to me that you were struggling with some fay folk in your garden did you ever work out how to approach that
1: I really want to say yes, but you never really know with the fae. Uh, You know, but it was during harvest (laughs) season when everything was a little wild. The garden was going through a big change, and there just seemed to be so much chaos. Things were going missing. There were odd flickers and orbs of light that I would barely catch out of the corner of my eye. So I did the only thing I could think of, which was message you about (laughs) it and ask for advice. I think that after we talked, I realized that all my digging in the garden and shifting things around, instead of letting nature take its course, might have been interfering with the land spirits that have called this place home long before I ever did. So I ended up doing a simple meditation in the garden, no working or doing anything beyond just observing. Then I scattered some wildflower and marigold seeds that I'd been collecting in hopes that my presence becomes more welcome over time. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I love marigolds for that. And also I hope that there were some foxgloves in that wildflower mix. I think that in my experience, the fey folk love foxgloves, but you'll have to keep me and our listeners updated. I know that you also just wrote a recipe book for Tamed Wild for the November box, and I had the opportunity to check that out. Thank you, Shelby. I'm wondering how you approached the creation of that booklet.
1: Well, this was the second volume of the Wild Recipes book. I wrote the first one in 2018, shortly after my move to the Azores. But this book has a lot of recipes that I've been perfecting over the past few years. Many are recipes that my family and in-laws have shared with me and that I've modified as I've learned to trust my intuition in the kitchen. I think that's my biggest goal when I sit down to write anything dedicated to the kitchen witch, to convince people to trust their intuition. Sometimes we make an edible work of art, and sometimes we burn everything to ashes, But that's how we sharpen our skills. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of my favorite things about the kitchen witch. She doesn't try to be perfect. She's just happy to have the freedom to create. And she's always happy to share. In my eyes, the kitchen witch is the heartbeat of a home. She is experienced, she's resourceful, and she's transformative. She isn't rich in the way that modern society views wealth, but whatever she lacks, she makes up for in ingenuity. For some of us, she takes after our mothers and grandmothers, who overcame hardship and lived by the rule, waste not, want not. She is, of course, a master in all things culinary. She boils, bakes, and brews her way into our hearts never wasting precious time to measure out ingredients or religiously follow a recipe, especially since adding a pinch of this and a bit of that has been the secret to her masterpieces all along. When I think of the traditional kitchen witch, I immediately think of Aunt Hilda from Sabrina the Teenage Witch and The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Hilda is always whipping up a cake or a batch of cookies, and is never too busy to put on the kettle and discuss whatever it is that someone needs to get off their chest. She comes across as creative, yet unassuming. But people sometimes forget that as the master chef and queen of the hearth of the Spellman household, she practices magic constantly, so her spellwork is powerful.
0: I love Aunt Hilda so much. (laughs) Melissa Joan Hart
1: fan or Chilling Adventure of Sabrina fan? Both. I (laughs) grew up watching the original Sabrina, as you probably did too, so that will always have a special place in my heart, but I really love the spooky vibes of the updated version. Mm -hmm. Hilda, along with other kitchen witches, probably dabble in green witchcraft as well. Their knowledge of roots, leaves, and seeds is extensive. She works with plants not only in the kitchen, but likely has a garden where she grows herbs and spices to enchant her meals. I think of Circe, the Greek goddess of magic, as portrayed in Madeline Miller's book. She lives alone on her island, rarely has guests to cook for, but when she does, it's a meal unlike any that they've had before.
0: I haven't ever thought of Circe as a kitchen witch. I know you're going to tell us, but please say more.
1: Well, like Circe and Aunt Hilda, the kitchen witch is also a goddess of transformation. Not only does she transform simple ingredients into a feast, but some, like Circe, are shapeshifters. The kitchen witch's ability to change her physical appearance is a cloaking mechanism, but also allows her to adapt to nearly any situation. We already know that the kitchen witch is resourceful, always using whatever magical ingredients she has on hand, but she is also malleable. She likes to reinvent herself. She understands that all life, hers included, is ever-changing and evolving into something greater. She lives for imagination, originality, and for embracing each stage of life, especially the later years. The more I learn about kitchen witches, the more I understand why they seem to be so full of life, even though so many of them appear as crones. Although kitchen witches have a life outside of the kitchen, usually as masters of hearth magic and handicrafts and ancestor worship, a large part of their life is spent in the kitchen, tending to the hearth fire. I often refer to a human's inner hearth fire when I'm speaking about the third chakra, or the energy node that sits between our heart and our sacrum. It's the area that we can actually feel activity in, whether it be warmth, fullness, or a fluttering sensation that arises during deep meditation or when we're manifesting. And in a home, the hearth is not much different. It's where a fire burns, a cauldron boils, and transformation takes place. So it makes sense that a kitchen might be considered the most magical room within a home. It's the area where women traditionally gathered, where they told stories, where they created, and where water, air, earth, and fire all intermingle. And I can't talk about kitchen witches without mentioning the Welsh goddess Ceridwyn. Her name, which I hope I am pronouncing correctly, comes from the Celtic word keru, which translates to cauldron. The cauldron has long been revered as a witch's most powerful tool, where intentions are burned, potions are brewed, and where we feed our creative ambitions. Since cooking is a daily activity for most, most kitchen witches can practice magic discreetly, without any muggles discovering their secret. In addition to her role as a hearth goddess, Keridwen is also associated with the moon, poetry, and higher knowledge. So, when it comes to kitchen witches, whether we're speaking about Hilda, Circe, Kiridwin, our grandmother, or someone else, there's no mistaking that this archetype will live forever, or for as long as they continue to fuel the hearth fire, the life force that in many ways is the soul of a home.
0: That's really beautiful. I love how kind of these images of hearth and home and um, the women that tend to them show up across myths and cultures and time. Like As you were speaking, I was thinking about Vesta, the Roman goddess of hearth and home, as well as her priestesses, the Vestals.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I almost wrote about Vesta for this episode. Mm. And the thing that I find most interesting about her is that she's rarely depicted in human form. Mm -hmm. From what I understand, most representations of Vesta show her as a fire, and I think that's really special and really aligns with her purpose as a hearth goddess.
0: Definitely. When I was in Rome a couple of years ago, they kind of have this fire imagery um, and kind of the space where the Vestal Virgins would tend to this flame, basically. And I was really struck by that imagery as well.
1: Yeah, it's powerful.
0: When I think about kitchen witches, I think first I think about my mom, which is actually funny to me because I don't think she would identify herself as very witchy. When I moved out, she gave me a box of recipes that my great aunt had given her. And in the box of recipes were cards with her handwriting and recipes from our family that I had grown up eating and cooking. And to me, this was magic. The wooden box that had been handed down filled with recipes was a physical talisman of sorts. Each recipe was a part of a big woven tapestry of family, tastes, and smells, and as I was leaving home, the box allowed me to transport that magic with me, especially the soups, which I mentioned earlier, I think are my favorite thing to make. I think because soups have so many herbs mixed into them, I often think of them as remedies, or maybe this is just because they were often made for me when I was sick. I know that at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, I was making soups like crazy. I still actually have a homemade veggie chicken noodle soup in my freezer that I'm saving for a rainy day, and Cody, my partner, won't stop making fun of me for it.
1: Do you think that your love of making soups has anything to do with the traditional image of a witch standing over her cauldron making potions? I know that even as a kid growing up in the country, I would regularly grab a bucket, some dirt, leaves, rocks, whatever was around, and try my hand at making what I thought were some pretty magical elixirs.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I also played a very similar game. (laughs) That's amazing. I, I think there's also something really intuitive about this, which I love. And I know that you talked about that earlier, kind of trusting your intuition and that being kind of emblematic of the kitchen witch. But it's like you get to go to your herb or spice rack and just kind of go for whichever jars seem to say like, hi, yes, pick me. So when I made that soup I was talking about, I, of course, incorporated all of my favorite healing herbs, you know, garlic, thyme, rosemary, salts. We had this big herb garden growing up, and I think basil was always the most plentiful. So we would add that into everything in the summer, and my mom would make pestos and sauces that would go into the fridge for winter. There were also so many soups during those cold months. I did some research around the magical properties of Basil and found a variety of stories and folklore associated with it. Basil has often been aligned with the underworld, and legend has it that the dead used to carry Basil in their hands as they made the journey to the next plane. Basil has also been attributed as a plant of the devil. Some even said that you had to curse the soil before planting basil in order for it to be successful, though I doubt that my mom was doing that in our garden growing up. Others believe that basil can be used as a protective plant, so if you're casting a protective circle, using basil in that spell may make it an even more potent charm. And others believe that basil can be used for flying or journeying, and you can make a salve with it and other herbs to aid in astral travel. On a medicinal level, basil is wonderful for soothing the stomach and can also be helpful topically for skin struggles. I'm also a huge fan of thyme, bay leaves, garlic, and mint, each with their own kind of beautiful vibration, properties, and folklore, but I think I'll have to save those for another time. I'm sure you feel similarly, Kristen, but I feel like magical practices and cooking practices are very much the same. There are steps, you follow them, you have a desired outcome or intention, and you may track in your own handwriting how you can alter, change, or adapt the craft or recipe over time.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I also feel that a homemade or handwritten cookbook feels very similar to a grimoire or a book of shadows. If you're able to get your hands on one like you did when your mom gifted you that box of recipes, it can offer so much insight into who somebody was when you're able to look at what they were crafting in the kitchen.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like a map through the family. I was taught also, I don't know if if this is your experience, but not to cook well in a bad mood because that sort of energy is put into your food. So we used to say blessings like as a child, which has now kind of shifted as I've become older and developed my own beliefs. But it's that sort of prayer is very much so like any sort of magical invocation. Like magic, recipes and cooking speak to a larger lineage or ancestry. I think that this also plays a role in storytelling. My obsession with stories started when I was very young, and I vividly remember my mom reading Strega Nona to me and my sister. Strega Nona literally translates to Grandma Witch. Did you read this book too?
1: Oh, definitely. It's my goal to have the entire collection of Strega Nona books in my library one day.
0: A very worthwhile goal. <laughs> The story was written by Tommy DePaula, and it was first published in 1975. Mm-hmm. So the synopsis that I found of the folktale goes like this, because I didn't have my hands on a physical copy. But Strega Nona is a witch who helps villagers with their troubles. She employs a young man named Big Anthony to help her with her chores. One day, he observes her singing a spell to a magic pasta pot to produce large amounts of cooked pasta. When Streganona leaves her house to visit a friend, Big Anthony uses the magic pasta pot to feed the villagers. Unfortunately, a great flood of pasta begins to overflow the entire town because Big Anthony doesn't know how to stop the pot. Upon Streganona's arrival, she blows three kisses and saves the town. A beautiful way to end a spell. I always thought that the story was that of folklore, but Nona is actually a totally original creation of Tomi De She does have some roots in Italian culture, but as De Paula explains on his website, the character came about as a variation on a comedic character, while Strega Nona is generally more wise but her other features, such as the never-ending pasta pot, for example, are purely elements of his imagination. Something else I just learned about this kitchen witch is that despite the honor of being rated one of the top children's books of all time, Stregonona also has been a historically challenged and banned book. It was banned from a number of children's libraries in the U.S. for depicting magic, witches, and witchcraft in a positive light. It takes its place with other challenged and banned books whose plots focus on the supernatural or magical worlds and whose characters are often witches and warlocks. Streganona brought magic into my life at an early age, much like my mom did with her own cooking. Along with the lessons that magic brings, pay attention and know your intention before casting spells around endless pasta.
1: Hey, I could talk about Strigonona all day, but I know our time is coming to an end, and it's a pretty big question to ask at the closing of an episode. But why do you think that for thousands of years, humans have felt called to incorporate food into ritual? I have plenty of theories, but I'd love to hear yours.
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. To me, there's something so intimate about sharing a meal with someone or preparing a meal. I think that the steps to prepare food are ritual in itself, so it seems very natural that the two would be linked together. Each meal has a step. You bring in different elements into the preparation. There's connection with the earth through ingredients, or connection with ancestry and culture through what those ingredients are. I think each meal tells its own story and has its own intention. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I love that explanation. I think that there's so many different things I could touch on here, especially since food and drink are literally a human's life force. Mm -hmm. But for me, incorporating food into ritual just seems like a simple and organic way to connect with and show gratitude to the earth. And many of us who practice some form of earth-based spirituality will notice that as the seasons change so does the food in our rituals. And I try to be mindful of that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like it's one of mother nature's many ways to keep us in sync with her cycles. I know that I told you earlier, but currently in my house, there's a big focus on chestnuts right now. And for the past couple of weeks, it's become a sort of nighttime ritual to roast a handful of chestnuts on the wood stove. As soon as I realized that this was becoming a pattern, I did some research on chestnuts so I could figure out, you know, how to make this accidental ritual more intentional. I wanted to know what deities aligned with chestnuts, what planets and zodiac signs they spoke to, how they react to the elements, and most importantly, what powers I was working with. I know that I won't always have access to this abundance of chestnuts, so I feel called to make the most of it while it lasts. (laughs) Do you have any last-minute words or advice for people who despise cooking but long to tap into the magic of kitchen witchery? Oh,
0: yes. (laughs) Besides pulling out a big soup pot and just seeing what happens, which is my Probably favorite thing. If you have friends or family members, you can ask for favorite recipes. I think that that's a really great place to start. I know that my grandma has been sending me recipes via Facebook Messenger. Thank you, Grandma Joan. So any way you can get your hands on them is perfect. Um, at one point, my cousins and I had kind of a email chain about them. We've done recipe exchanges at holiday parties. Kind of, yeah, I think just reaching out and having that personal connection to the recipe is a is a great way to start.
1: I would agree with you a hundred per cent. I think that if you want to tap into your inner kitchen witch, I would start with something forgiving, like soups or even creating personalized tea and spice blends, and just see where really? it leads you. I also highly encourage people to start an herb garden. In my experience, as we familiarize ourselves with the medicinal and magical properties of plants, we'll start to realize how their unique energies can transform a simple meal into a signature recipe. And I also think it's important to mention that the kitchen witch rules so much more than just cooking. And we can connect with her through a number of domestic activities, like caring for an indoor herb garden, house plants, purifying our home with smoke from sacred plants or essential oils, and just being intentional about the energies we invite into and the ambiance we create within our home. Everything from choosing which candles to burn, what art to display, what words we speak, is a valuable form of hearth magic.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, the new podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Baloo and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at k8baloo or at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via our email at podcast at You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com.
1: Join us for next week's episode where we talk about Hecate and her beloved garden. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.